You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 287 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. As y'all recall, last week we talked about Ulysses S. Grant's decision to march his army down the west side of the Mississippi River and then cross over to the east side below the Confederate strong point at Vicksburg. We also talked about Steele's expedition and how this was an example of not only Grant creating a diversion north of Vicksburg, but also an example of the Federal's new policy of expanding the war to include Southern social and economic institutions. And then at the end of the last show, we talked about a couple of Union cavalry raids, one by Colonel Abel Strait's mule-mounted troops, which ended up drawing away Confederate cavalry commander Nathan Bedford Forrest so that he'd play no further role in the Vicksburg campaign. And we also talked just a bit about the raid by Colonel Benjamin Grierson's Union horsemen, which was the most spectacular Union cavalry operation of the war up until that point and which we said we talk about in much more detail in some future members' episodes. So, in the last show, we talked quite a bit about the Yankees. But what about the Confederates? Well, as winter passed into spring, the rebel commander, John Pemberton, simply couldn't get a handle on what all was going on in his department, particularly along the Mississippi River. He just wasn't able to formulate an accurate picture of what the Yankees were up to. This was, in part, a problem of his own making. You see, during Grant's unsuccessful overland campaign, which ended after Van Dorn's Holly Springs raid, exactly, but during that time, Pemberton had assumed operational command of his forces in the field, which was fine. But then after that, he established his headquarters at Jackson, the state capital of Mississippi, which is about 40 miles east of Vicksburg. So, one, Pemberton isn't even at Vicksburg, and two, at Jackson, Pemberton immersed himself in administrative work. During the first four months of 1863, he visited Vicksburg only occasionally. In fact, for nearly all of that period, Ulysses S. Grant, just across the Mississippi River, was closer to Vicksburg than Pemberton.
After five months of pairing Union Thrust from Grant's Overland Campaign to Sherman at Chickasaw Bayou to the Yazoo Pass Expedition to Steele's Greenville Operation, Pemberton was showing signs of strain. Using words that revealed both exasperation and confusion, he informed Secretary of War James Seddon in Richmond that, quote, enemy is constantly in motion in all directions. Steele's Greenville expedition kept Pemberton's attention focused on the area immediately north of Vicksburg, which had been the scene of almost continuous federal activity since the Battle of Chickasaw Bayou. Grierson's raid through the interior of Mississippi shifted his attention around to his rear. Distracted by these pinpricks, Pemberton was slow to sense that the bulk of Grant's army across the river was flowing south through the Louisiana countryside toward the region below Vicksburg. In early April, Pemberton confidently declared, quote, So far, enemy has gained nothing toward opening the Mississippi. End quote. But even while that inaccurate assessment hummed over the telegraph wires to Richmond, McClernand's Union soldiers had marched south down the west side of the river and had reached New Carthage. Pemberton possibly did seem to have reason for optimism when a large number of Union transports steamed off up the Mississippi in April. Pemberton tentatively concluded that Grant might have given up after the failure of the Yazoo Pass and Steele's Bayou operations, and that the annoying cavalry raids were designed to mask a Union withdrawal. You can almost hear the sigh of relief as he reported, I think most of Grant's forces are being withdrawn to Memphis. If Grant was indeed pulling back, Pemberton thought it likely that much of the federal force opposite Vicksburg would join William Rosecrans' Union Army in Tennessee. This, of course, would be bad news for Braxton Bragg, the Confederate commander in Tennessee. The overall rebel commander in the West, Joseph Johnston, concurred with Pemberton's reading of the situation and so Joe Johnston approved Pemberton's decision to send part of his command to Tennessee to bolster Bragg's numbers. Actually, Pemberton intended this to be a return of the equivalent of Carter Stevenson's division, which Jefferson Davis and Joe Johnston had borrowed from Bragg in December 1862 to reinforce Vicksburg. Y'all may recall that we previously pointed out this was the reason Bragg didn't have Stevenson's division at the Battle of Stones River, that is, because it had been sent to Pemberton in Mississippi. All right, so in any case, the bottom line to all of that is that Pemberton thought Grant was withdrawing and that Grant would be sending troops to Rosecrans in Tennessee. So he, Pemberton, was actually willing to weaken the forces in his department by sending men to Braxton Bragg. Okay, then. Joe Johnston thought that Pemberton's interpretation of federal activities at Vicksburg was reasonable and that it accounted for the fact the federal camps across the river weren't as crowded as they had been just a short time earlier. 
The obvious conclusion was that Grant's army was returning north from whence it had come. A large number of federal transports were, in fact, heading for Tennessee, but they were empty. You see, Rosecrans was experiencing logistical problems, and so Halleck directed Grant to release the smaller steamboats that could operate most effectively on the Ohio, Cumberland, and Tennessee rivers, which would be the light draft transports that had been used to carry Union troops into the bayous north of Vicksburg. And so in early April, dozens of steamships, many of them much the worse for wear by that point in time, pulled away from Young's Point and Millican's Bend and churned northward. This redeployment of these transports unintentionally acted as yet another diversion and misled Pemberton into thinking that Grant was indeed withdrawing to Memphis. But while Pemberton insisted that all was well, Brigadier General John S. Bowen began to suspect otherwise. Bowen was a West Pointer and one of Pemberton's most capable subordinates, and he commanded the Confederate outpost at Grand Gulf on the Mississippi downriver from Vicksburg. When he learned a federal force of unknown size was gathering at New Carthage, about 15 miles to the north, across the river, Bowen sent Colonel Francis Cockrell's brigade of Missouri infantry across the Mississippi to find out what was going on. As they slogged across the inundated Louisiana countryside, Cockrell and his men experienced the same unpleasant conditions the Yankees had been up against since the beginning of the campaign. One Missouri soldier recalled, quote, most of the route lay through a vast sheet of water covering the surface of both woods and fields, from knee to waist deep. After floundering about for a week, Cockrell encountered strong federal detachments several miles south of New Carthage. He gathered as much information as he could, then reported to Bowen that the Yankees were definitely up to something big. Bowen, in turn, reported to Pemberton that the enemy army appeared to be moving in force down the west side of the Mississippi. But this didn't fit into Pemberton's idea of what was going on. In fact, it directly contradicted his belief that Grant was pulling back north to Memphis. And so John Pemberton dismissed Bowen's warning with three fateful words. Much doubt it. With the Walnut Bayou route impractical because of low water, Grant had no choice but to attempt to send supplies down the Mississippi River directly under the Confederate guns at Vicksburg to sustain the Federal troops concentrating at New Carthage. Remember in the last episode we talked about the Walnut Bayou route maybe, perhaps, being the line of supply for the Union forces moving south, but in the end it hadn't panned out. Right. Anyhow, Grant realized that running vulnerable, unarmed transports past the rebel guns at Vicksburg wasn't a long-term solution. He knew that it would be next to impossible to maintain McClernand's corps, much less the entire army, for any length of time by such a perilous route. But he hoped to slip enough supplies past Vicksburg 
to keep the men and animals at New Carthage alive until he could arrange something better. Grant informed the commander of the Union Navy's Mississippi Squadron, David Dixon Porter, that he intended to run transports loaded with food and forage downriver past Vicksburg. If most of the steamships survived the passage, McClernand's command not only would have enough to eat for several more days, but with the transports that had just run past Vicksburg, Grant would also have the means of crossing troops over to the east bank of the river. However, Grant was concerned about the possibility that Confederate gunboats might dash out of the Red River, evade Farragut's tiny flotilla at the mouth of the Red, then race up the Mississippi and destroy the Union transports after they reached New Carthage. And so Grant asked Porter whether a pair of ironclads could accompany the transports downstream. Porter was agreeable, as always, but he did warn Grant that once the ironclads went below Vicksburg, quote, we give up all hopes of ever getting them up again. The city-class ironclads, the Turtles, made about six knots moving with the current, which permitted them to pass the rebel gun batteries at Vicksburg in less than half an hour. Moving upriver against the current, though, they would be under fire for well over an hour, probably closer to two. In other words, once they'd gone downriver, attempting to come back upstream would mean the plodding ironclads would be nearly stationary targets for the Confederate gunners, who only a few days earlier had demonstrated their skill by perforating the two Allet rams, Switzerland and Lancaster. It was at this point that Grant hesitated. What if Sherman and McPherson, his two corps commanders who had voiced doubts about this entire scheme, were right? Perhaps he was taking too great a risk in moving the army south down the Louisiana shore. And so a few days after directing McClernand to head south for New Carthage, Grant ascended the Yazoo River on one of Porter's ironclads. Back in December, Sherman's attempt to get at Vicksburg from the north by way of Chickasaw Bayou had failed miserably. But now Grant wanted to see for himself whether a more powerful federal thrust against the rebels, Haines Bluff, Walnut Hills fortifications, might succeed. However, the sight of the Confederate earthworks convinced Grant that a second attack here would fare no better than the first. Grant informed Porter that, quote, after the reconnaissance of yesterday, I am satisfied that an attack upon Haines Bluff would be attended with an immense loss of life, if not with defeat. This, then, closes out the last hope of turning the enemy by moving to our left. Grant's moment of self-doubt was over. Having satisfied himself that it was impossible to approach Vicksburg from the north, he was now certain that the only viable course of action left to him was to cross the army over the Mississippi River below Vicksburg. And so McPherson and Sherman would follow McClernand. The Army of the Tennessee would go south.
The Army of the Tennessee would go south, and so would most of Porter's Mississippi squadron. Grant had asked for two ironclads to accompany the transports, but after thinking the matter over, Porter concluded that a more substantial naval force would be necessary. One of the reasons Porter came to this conclusion was because Secretary of the Navy Gideon Wells had directed him to lead the Mississippi squadron downriver into the Vicksburg-Port-Hudson corridor as soon as possible, so that Farragut could return to New Orleans and resume active command of the West Gulf Blockading Squadron. As y'all will recall, Farragut was blockading the mouth of the Red with the odd trio of Hartford, Albatross, and the Ram Switzerland. Yep. Well, so at any rate, Porter decided to run downriver past Vicksburg with his ironclad flagship, Benton, four turtles, Louisville, Pittsburgh, Mound City, and Carondelet, two new ironclads, Lafayette and Tuscumbia, and the captured ram, General Price. The eight gunboats would be accompanied by three transports loaded with food and forage and covered with bales of cotton and hay for protection. Barges filled with coal and additional supplies would be lashed to the sides of the gunboats and transports. To ensure that his instructions would be carried out to the letter, Porter would personally lead the flotilla aboard Benton. In their book, Vicksburg is the Key, William Shea and Terence Winchell write, The most dramatic episode in the long struggle for Vicksburg and one of the most spectacular episodes in the entire Civil War, began two hours after dark on April 16, 1863, when the heart of the Mississippi Squadron got underway. The darkened vessels crept around the tip of DeSoto Point, hugging the west bank. Union soldiers climbed trees for a better view, and sailors crowded the upper decks of the vessels left behind. Grant, accompanied by his wife Julia and their children, watched from a transport. Sherman waited near the lower end of the canal in charge of a tiny flotilla of his own, four rowboats manned by his soldiers. If the worst happened, he was prepared to rescue survivors floating downstream. Porter was in the pilot house of Benton at the head of the single line of ships. After rounding DeSoto Point undetected, he muttered to the pilot that, quote, the rebels seem to keep a very poor watch. Hardly were the words out of his mouth before a flare blossomed on the Vicksburg side of the river. Fires erupted as the Confederates torched vacant buildings and lit barrels of tar and bales of cotton soaked in turpentine to illuminate the river and their targets. But strangely, not one shot was fired, and the Federal vessels continued steaming downriver. On this particular night, many of the rebel artillery officers happened to be attending a ball that was being thrown at one of Vicksburg's finest residences. When the alarm sounded, the officers bade their partners adieu and then rushed out into the night that was now illuminated by the unearthly light of the flames consuming the empty buildings and the blazing barrels of tar and bales of cotton. Six minutes ticked by before the first Confederate gun roared into action. 
six critical minutes during which Porter's vessels continued to glide down the river and slip past the rebel batteries opposite DeSoto Point. But a few moments more, and then the crash of heavy artillery and the rattle of musketry were all that could be heard. Billows of smoke from the fires and gun smoke from dozens of heavy guns settled on the river and obscured the scene. The flashes of muzzle blasts and exploding shells lit up the clouds of smoke from within like heat lightning. What had been an orderly single line of vessels quickly became a chaotic rush downstream as the captain or pilot of each vessel called for full speed and set his own course past the Confederate guns. Some ships steered toward the middle of the river and raced downstream as fast as their engines and the current could carry them. Others lost their way in the smoke and veered back and forth across the broad stream. Several of the unwieldy turtles slipped out of control in unseen eddies and spun round and round as the current carried them to safety. Gunners aboard the ironclads could see almost nothing because of the smoke, but that didn't stop them from contributing to the hellish scene. The Federals fired over 100 large-caliber rounds into Vicksburg, smashing buildings with shot and shell, and spraying the docks and waterfront with grape shot. Grape shot was the naval equivalent of army artillery firing canister, so, as we've said, it's like turning the cannon into a giant shotgun. Exactly. Well, despite being taken by surprise and getting a late start, the Confederate gunners still fired over 500 rounds and scored perhaps 70 hits on the Yankee vessels. The hail of shot and shell smashed armor, sprung beams and planks, severed steam lines, and riddled smokestacks and wheelhouses. A near disaster occurred when one of the new ironclads, Lafayette, briefly went aground on the east bank directly in front of a rebel battery. She was struck nine times at point-blank range before pulling free. Several shots smashed through one side of the ship and out the other, but failed to damage her engines or guns. Only one unlucky transport and a coal barge failed to rush, spin, or drift past the Confederate batteries. The civilian crew of the transport Henry Clay panicked and abandoned their burning ship when they might have been able to douse the flames. However, the pilot was made of sterner stuff and stayed at his post until the end. He jumped into the river and was rescued by Sherman's rowboat patrol. The other two transports, Silver Wave and Forest Queen, made it through. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. 
You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Livesey from the History of the Second World War podcast. My podcast is a mostly chronological retelling of the Second World War, and I hope you will join me on a journey through the most cataclysmic conflict in human history as we try to answer the questions of not just what and where, but how and why. Join me on a journey not just through the famous campaigns, battles, and events, but also on a trip around the globe as we broaden the scope of Second World War history beyond the well-known battlefields of Europe and the Pacific. During weekly episodes, I seek to provide new insight for longtime students of the war, while also being a great jumping-on point for anyone seeking a deeper understanding of the Second World War. This podcast has made it to the invasion of Poland in 1939, and start listening now to find out how the world would find itself embroiled in its second worldwide conflict in just 20 years. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at History of the Second World War. Porter assembled his battered ships below Vicksburg. To his great relief, he discovered that every surviving vessel was still operational, or soon would be and that only twelve men had been wounded while running the gauntlet of enemy shell-fire. The next morning the flotilla tied up along the levee at New Carthage to the cheers of McClernand's troops. Grant was as relieved as Porter, but he knew he would need more than just the two transports to ferry his army across to the east bank of the Mississippi, and so he ordered a second run past Vicksburg to be made six days later, on the night of April 22nd. And this time there would be no panicky civilian crews. Instead, six transports manned by army volunteers were packed to the gills with supplies and protected with logs and cotton bales. Each steamship had two barges loaded with additional supplies lashed alongside. The transports would sprint downriver past the rebel batteries as fast as possible there would be no attempt at keeping formation or executing evasive maneuvers under fire. A few hours after dark on April 22nd, the transports Tigris, Empire City, Moderator, Anglo-Saxon, Horizon, and J.W. Cheeseman rounded DeSoto Point. This time, the Confederate lookouts were alert and the rebel artillerymen were at their posts. Within moments, flares and bonfires illuminated the scene as before, and the rebel guns rained shot and shell on the transports as soon as they came within range. The volume of fire was twice as great as had been the case six nights earlier, partly because the rebel gun crews were in a higher state of preparedness, and partly because the Confederates didn't have to keep their heads down this time, since the unarmed Federal transports didn't shoot back. Once again, the river in front of Vicksburg was filled with fire and fury. William Strong, on the lead transport Tigris, later said, quote, It was the most magnificent display of fireworks ever witnessed by man. It seemed as though heaven and hell had turned everything loose to destroy us. I can never forget it, nor can I describe it. 
Only those who faced this terrible concentrated fire or who witnessed it can have the faintest idea of its beauty. As the bright light from bonfires and blazing barrels of pitch and flaming cotton bales brightly illuminated the scene, Strong continued, saying, quote, The streets of the city were filled with citizens. The gunners at work could be distinctly seen, and a newspaper could have been read with ease on the deck of the Tigris. End quote. With everything lit up like day, Strong noticed that the officers around him check their pocket watches against the clock on the Warren County Courthouse as they sped by Vicksburg. It was twenty minutes past midnight. If Vicksburg could be seen clearly from the decks of the transports, the transports could be seen with equal clarity from Vicksburg. The steamships had the advantage of speed, although the barges lashed alongside slowed them down considerably. The transports took a terrific pounding from the rebel batteries. Tigris was hulled and went down in shallow water near the lower end of the canal. All of the other ships were damaged, some seriously, and half of the barges were sunk or cut adrift and lost. Two men were killed and six wounded. But the five surviving transports reached New Carthage at dawn on April 23rd. When the sun rose on April 17, 1863, after Porter's run past Vicksburg with his gunboats, the Confederacy was sundered in two. Pemberton telegraphed Richmond, telling Jefferson Davis, I regard navigation of the Mississippi River as shut out from us now. No more supplies can be gotten from Trans-Mississippi Department. This was a logistical catastrophe, not only for Pemberton, but for the entire Confederacy. Rebel forces from Vicksburg to Virginia depended on supplies from Louisiana and Texas that had come east by way of the Red River. Those supplies would no longer arrive because the Confederates' Vicksburg-Port-Hudson corridor along the Mississippi River had ceased to exist in any meaningful way. After the Federal transports ran past Vicksburg on the night of April 22nd, Pemberton realized that Grant now had the means to cross the Mississippi River below Vicksburg whenever and wherever the Yankee commander chose. But this knowledge did little to spur Pemberton to prepare for such an eventuality. After sending a second brigade of Confederate infantry to Grand Gulf, which doubled Bowen's strength at that spot to about 4,200 men, Pemberton's attention was focused on alarming reports of a Union cavalry force rampaging unopposed through Mississippi. This was Grierson's raid, which was now underway. With the Union horsemen slashing down through the interior of the Magnolia State, the timing of Grierson's raid, from Grant's perspective, couldn't have been better. Fortune favors the bold, so the saying goes, and Grant's gambles were paying off. The arrival of the heavily laden transports and barges at New Carthage solved his pressing logistical problems, at least in the short term. At least McClernand's men and animals wouldn't starve for another week or two. 
More important, the additional transports gave Grant the capability to ferry troops across the Mississippi River and gain a foothold on the East Bank. And so now the immediate questions were where to cross and what to do once the army was on the other side. Grant made his way down to New Carthage on April 18th to discuss the situation with McClernand and Porter. By this time, all four divisions of the 13th Corps had crowded into the New Carthage area. Two divisions of McPherson's 17th Corps were on their way down from Lake Providence to Millican's Bend and shortly would begin marching south on the Walnut Bayou Road. Sherman's 15th Corps remained behind for the time being, but would follow in due course. There wasn't enough dry ground around New Carthage to serve as the staging area for tens of thousands of men and animals and hundreds of wagons and other wheeled vehicles. That meant another crossing point would have to be found. The next day, McClernand's Corps started marching south from New Carthage in two columns, one atop the Mississippi River levee and the other a short distance inland on the Bayou Vidal Road, which was essentially a continuation of the Walnut Bayou Road. On the Confederate side, when Bowen learned that Porter's gunboats were below Vicksburg, he recalled Cockrell's brigade of Missourians back across the Mississippi to Grand Gulf, lest it be cut off on the west side of the river. This was another break for Grant because it meant that McClernand's advance south from New Carthage meant no enemy opposition. For the rebels, it meant that Bowen no longer had any reliable way of knowing what the Yankees were doing over on the Louisiana side of the river. McClernand's two columns reunited at Somerset, a landing on the Mississippi River eight miles below New Carthage. When Somerset also proved inadequate as a staging area for the Army, McClernand sent a reconnaissance force around Lake St. Joseph to a place with the charming name of Hard Times. Hard Times was the next landing downriver from Somerset. There was a good road around Lake St. Joseph, and the Federals reached hard times without any difficulty. There they found the area was high, dry, and spacious. Opposite hard times, the Big Black River flows into the Mississippi from the east. The wide, turbulent confluence of the two streams is Grand Gulf. The remains of a small town of the same name were located on the east bank of the Mississippi, a short distance below the mouth of the Big Black. The place had been burned by Farragut earlier in the war, but good roads led from the charred waterfront into the interior of Mississippi, and so Grant thought the place would be an ideal spot to land his army. On April 28th, the seven transports, all more or less repaired, carried three of McClernand's divisions down the Mississippi from Somerset to hard times. The 4th Division marched around Lake St. Joseph using the route taken earlier by the scouting force. The next day, two of McPherson's divisions reached hard times by the same road after a difficult march from Millican's Bend. That meant that by the evening of April 28th, 
half of the Army of the Tennessee was crowded along the west bank of the Mississippi River, 63 roundabout overland miles below Millikan's Bend. Across the way, three miles downriver at Grand Gulf, Bowen watched the smoke from hundreds of enemy campfires darken the sky over hard times. Bowen had repeatedly warned Pemberton that the Federals were moving south in overwhelming force. Now he tried again to get Pemberton to understand what was happening, sending a wire that read, I advise that every man and gun that can be spared from other points be sent here. That was the very thing that Grant feared most. Grand Gulf was only 30 miles south of Vicksburg by road. If Pemberton woke up to the danger and sent Bowen enough rebel troops to defend the towering bluffs behind the ruined town of Grand Gulf, well, then it would be Chickasaw Bayou all over again. And so in order to buy the landing force as much time as possible, Grant asked Sherman to make a strong demonstration against the Confederate positions north of Vicksburg. Sherman quickly packed Brigadier General Francis Blair's division aboard ten transports and churned up the Yazoo River, with whistles blowing and bands playing. After two days of noisy skirmishing in front of the rebels' Haines Bluff-Walnut Hills fortifications, Sherman returned to Young's Point and sent two of his three divisions hustling down the road toward New Carthage and Hard Times, following after the rest of the army. Whether Sherman's demonstration had the desired effect on Pemberton is uncertain, but it certainly revealed Grant's determination to do everything possible to distract and confuse his opponent. While Sherman put on a show north of Vicksburg, Grant prepared to cross the Mississippi River at Grand Gulf. He believed Porter's gunboats could hammer the Confederate fortifications into submission, just as they had done at Arkansas Post. Porter, though, was less certain. He regarded Grand Gulf as, quote, the strongest place on the Mississippi, end quote. And Porter was right to be cautious. Bowen and his men had worked feverishly to prepare Grand Gulf to withstand an enemy naval attack. Fort Coban was a massive earthen structure with walls 40 feet thick, located partway up the bluff north of the ruined town, and mounting several heavy weapons. Fort Wade, located on the river just below the town, held a mammoth 100-pounder Blakely rifled gun and other big cannon. Despite his misgivings, Porter agreed to throw everything he had at Grand Gulf. On the morning of April 29th, thousands of McClernand's troops crowded aboard transports and barges. They pulled away from hard times and gathered behind a long peninsula named Coffee Point. There they waited for word from Porter that his gunboats had silenced the Confederate guns. When it was safe to proceed, the transports would cross the river to Grand Gulf, disembark the troops of the first wave along the charred waterfront, then hurry back to hard times for reinforcements. 
Grant watched from a small tugboat while Porter led his seven ironclads against the rebel forts in what would be the last major ship versus shore engagement on the western rivers in the Civil War. Fighting raged at such close range that nearly every shot found its target. The Turtles, Louisville, Mound City, Carondelet, and Pittsburgh pounded Fort Wade and silenced its guns. They then swung around and slowly made their way upstream where Benton, with Porter aboard, Lafayette, and Tuscumbia were slugging it out nearly muzzle to muzzle with Fort Coban. The unearthly din caused by discharging guns, exploding shells, and iron shot striking iron plate was beyond description. To mesmerized spectators on both banks, the black-painted ironclads seemed to glide like wraiths through swirling clouds of smoke and dust. After six hours of the most intense fighting ever to take place on the Mississippi River, Porter called a halt in order to rest his crews and assess the damage. The gunboats chugged over to the west bank, where surgeons, mechanics, and carpenters did what they could to repair men and ships. Benton and Pittsburgh were struck 47 and 35 times, respectively, but stayed in the fight to the end. As luck would have it, the poorly built Tuscumbia, a particularly large target, received over 80 hits and lost armor plates, gun port shutters, and an engine. At least 24 Union sailors, as well as soldiers serving as volunteers aboard the gunboats, were killed, and another 56 wounded. Although Porter had no way of knowing it, his battered ironclads had actually given worse than they got. The Federals fired over 2,300 large-caliber shells into the Confederate earthworks. Both forts were heavily damaged, and every gun but one was destroyed dismounted, or buried under heaps of dirt. Bowen lost three men killed and fifteen wounded. One of the dead was Colonel William Wade, Bowen's chief of artillery. After the Yankee gunboats withdrew, the Confederates frantically struggled to repair their earthworks and remount guns. The standoff at Grand Gulf meant that Ulysses S. Grant had a tough decision to make regarding how to proceed. Porter reported that it appeared only one or two enemy guns remained in operation across the way, but Grant decided that attempting a landing at Grand Gulf would be too dangerous. McClernand's men returned to hard times and disembarked. Late in the afternoon, at Grant's request, Porter led his battered gunboats back toward Grand Gulf and began a half-hearted bombardment of the rebel fortifications. While this twilight action was in progress, the empty transports and barges swung around Coffee Point and slipped past Grand Gulf in the deepening gloom. After half an hour, the ironclads broke off their firing and followed the transports downstream. Meanwhile, the soldiers of McClernand's and McPherson's corps left hard times and resumed their southward march across the base of Coffee Point, out of range of the Confederate guns across the river. 
After midnight, the Union Army and Navy reunited at Disharoon Plantation, seven miles below Hard Times and four miles below Grand Gulf. Pemberton was outflanked, although he didn't yet know it. That same night, while the Federals gathered at Disharoon, the befuddled Confederate commander telegraphed a rather sad query from his headquarters in Jackson, asking, quote, Is anything going on at Vicksburg or Grand Gulf? A short distance downstream from Disharoon, on the east bank of the Mississippi River, was an insignificant landing named Bruinsburg. A federal patrol crossed the river and encountered a slave whose name, unfortunately, was never recorded. But the man informed the Yankees that a road led inland from Bruinsburg to the town of Port Gibson. He also said there were no Confederates nearer than Grand Gulf. You see, a rebel cavalry regiment normally patrolled this stretch of the East Bank. But four days earlier, Pemberton had sent those horsemen off in futile pursuit of Grierson's raiders. During April, Grant had moved down the west side of the Mississippi River in search of an opening to exploit. Cautious at first, he became bolder and more opportunistic as the operation unfolded. When New Carthage and Somerset proved unsatisfactory, he moved on. While Hard Times was a suitable place to concentrate for a crossing, Grand Gulf proved to be too tough a nut to crack, and so Grant pressed on to Disharoon. Grant was prepared to continue farther south, but then he learned about the road that, that ran up the bluffs from Bruinsburg to Port Gibson. That settled matters. The troops would cross to the east bank here. All that mattered now was getting the Army of the Tennessee across the Mississippi River as rapidly as possible. Grant and McClernand worked through the night to ensure that everything was in readiness for a crossing first thing in the morning. Meanwhile, aboard Benton, Porter sat in his cabin and wrote a letter to Gideon Wells, telling the Navy Secretary about the battle at Grand Gulf. Just before closing, Porter added, We land the army in the morning on the other side, and march on Vicksburg. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is Vicksburg, The Campaign That Opened the Mississippi by Michael B. Ballard. Don't forget you can find a list of all of our book recommendations at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. And then as we wrap up this show, we want to thank iTone for his donation this past week. And thanks also to the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade, Lawrence, Thomas, William, and Mark. Thanks, guys. And then thanks to each and every one of you for listening to this episode of the Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope you'll join us again next time when we'll continue with the Vicksburg story arc. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. <laughs>